So, I don't know. She's like, move your skulls to the basement, because I got these drapes. I don't even get that. I'm like, honey, this is work. Are you serious? I can't, yeah, I can't put them in the f***ing basement. Yeah, I mean, man. and she's like, you know, can you put a tarp over them also? Oh, and no I just way. Felt like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Damn, Damn I got one at home just like it, man. Yeah. Am I got a kid now? And so... Well, that's a whole other set of bullshit, I'm sure. Right, so Kathy puts the co-sleeper right next to my preserved brain collection. And she wants me to move him because she thinks it's not hygienic. I don't understand how there's such a lack of appreciation for that backlight coming through the glass of the jars that the brains are in. And it just looks cool. You've seen that. Why move it? That's the point of putting it next to the window. As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. What's up, folks? Welcome back. This is going to be our probably I, I, I can almost guarantee at this point because I we're not finished recording and whatever that this is going to be a two part episode that we're going to do on axe murderers. Um, we're going to cover a few of them ourselves, and then we also have returning guest Robert Schneck to the show. At this point, I don't really think Robert needs much needs much of an introduction. He's kind of um, I, I think I say it in the interview actually that he's become our go to guy for odd history. And mm -hmm. strange history, and I was talking to him on Facebook, and from now it's to a point now where if I have something weird comes up, me and you will bug him and say, "Hey, do you know anything about this?" So I said, "We're doing a show on serial, I mean, serial killers, the axe murderers," <laughs> and uh, I'm like, "Do you have anybody that you know anything about?" And he propped up with Lizzie Borden, and uh, I said, "Yeah, we we cannot possibly do a show on axe murderers without covering Lizzie Borden." So Robert's in here later. He's on here for about an hour, which may get edited into two separate halves, depending on how this editing of the show falls together. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where we're going right now. I want everybody to know that that last little 10-minute episode we did about Heavy Water was just kind of a joke thing. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I think people knew that. <laughs> so, some people knew it. Yeah. Others don't. We got a we got I'll an give email. you a hint. If 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 Rose gonna do a recording and you hear a bunch of psychobabble and scientific jargon falling out of my head, <laughs> it's a joke. We got an email from somebody from an old episode we did. I'll explain it one more time that we got something wrong to do with heavy water, and um, and the guy was I mean he was he wasn't trying to be rude. I'm not really sure. It's all been cleared up now. But most people, they would be like, hey, you know, they would have told the guy to screw off. So I thought about it. I said, well, let me contact the guy. And I'm like, here's my Skype number. Call me. Call me on Skype. Let's talk about this. So I said, do you want to come on the show and talk about this? And he was kind of apprehensive about it. And then, you know, I was like, well, I don't know what we did wrong. And the guy is, I think he's a nuclear physicist. I'm not 100% sure. But he, he sent kind of a condescending email. Then he later on apologized for it. And he eventually said, yeah, I'll come on the show and we'll talk about it. But honestly, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to the guy and have him back on the show. Um, but we had to do a rebuttal of some kind. <laughs> we just had well, to. So Okay, once and for all, 
Heavy Water is D2O. I'm not even really sure what we screwed up. I went back and listened to Well, it was the, the fact that it was it was the stuff that they spoke about in the article that we read. I, they were calling Heavy Water H3O, which yeah. is in fact D2O. I don't know. It don't matter. It's, it doesn't. At this point, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Nobody really cares because he was the only person that sent in. That, that person, this person was the only person that's ever sent us an email like this of any kind of negativity or whatever. Because mostly, I think what it was is he was upset that we had given out misinformation. He was afraid that people were going to hear our show and take that for fact when hmm. we're covering a news article from somebody else. So people should right. know right there if we're covering. That's why like, we had Robert on to talk about Lizzie tonight. If we don't know what we're talking about... We make our best effort to do that, to try to cover our butts. But if we really don't know, we'll try to get somebody on who does know. If we're going to be completely serious about what we're talking about, we're going to get somebody who does know what they're talking about to cover that subject to the best of our ability. So by no means, if anybody hears anything on this show, go out and question it and look for yourself. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. We're not going to be, you know, if, if somebody says, hey, you guys were wrong on this, sweet. You know, oftentimes we try to correct ourselves as fast as possible. Uh, well, I think like we did the it last week. Basis for so, science. Yeah. If, you, if you're wrong, show me. Yeah. I want to know I'm wrong so that I can alleviate the problem. And uh, that was basically what it was. But you know, the guy. And, but I read the email. I was like, "Wow, that's that's kind of douchey." And then I thought about it's, it, and I wrote the guy back, and I tried to be cool about it. And then he apologized. Because, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said. Anyhow, the thing with that guy has all worked out now. And that was literally the only angry email we've ever really gotten like that of that kind. I won't repeat what it said because – Of that kind, yeah. We've gotten yelled at for saying that we're not talented or I didn't take care of myself or you fell out of a truck and what are you doing? And, and that's fine. We Duffy we Mom does that. that kind of stuff to us. <laughs> so anyways, um, let's just jump into this. Why don't we start off with the article because you've got one of an axe murderer that happened in your neck of the woods. Literally. So go right for it. Okay, Tyree Smith, accused axe murderer and cannibal, allegedly said victim's eye tastes like oyster. A Connecticut murder suspect was arrested Tuesday night in Florida after allegedly killing a man Florida. with an axe and eating yeah, well, in eating portions of the victim. According to police in Bridgeport, Connecticut, didn't we talk about Bridgeport? Mm-hmm. 35-year-old uh, Tyree Lincoln Smith was arrested in Lynn Haven, Florida. Again, Florida. On a murder warrant issued by the Constitution State, also known as the Nutmeg State. The suspect, that was for um, one of our, uh, Bernie, he calls me Nutmegger. Um, the suspect was taken into custody without incident by local law enforcement and the U.S. Marshals Violent Crime Fugitive Task Force, police said. The murder suspect, uh, whose last known address is in Bridgeport, was being sought for murder of 43-year-old Angel Tun-Tun Gonzalez. Gonzalez, <laughs> probably one of my family members. Um, the victim's decomposed body was discovered on a mattress inside an abandoned apartment building on January 20th. The medical examiner's office determined Gonzalez died as a result of blunt force trauma to the head. There's I'm some going slight to hell. cutting. <laughs> I'm laughing. Uh, according to the arrest warrant, Smith confessed to his cousin, uh, Nicole Robb, that he killed Gonzalez with a hatchet in mid December. He allegedly said he was sleeping on a porch of an abandoned apartment building when Gonzalez, a man he apparently did not know, woke him up and invited him in out of the cold. After entering the building, Smith allegedly attacked Gonzalez with an axe. So the dude invites him into a building to get out of the cold, and he kills him. Mm-hmm. Nice. No good deed goes unpunished. That's the truth. Tyree allegedly told his cousin that the blows to Gonzalez's head were so severe that he was able to remove an eye from the man's head along with a piece of brain matter and a piece of his skull. 
The arrest warrant reads, Afterward, Smith allegedly took the organs to Lakeview Cemetery, where a relative of his is buried. At the cemetery, he said he ate the eyeball, which tasted like an oyster, and the brain matter, according to the warrant. During his uh, alleged confession, I like that alleged confession, Smith reportedly spoke of Greek gods and referred to Rob as Athena. Wow. That is such a bizarre angle to go into. Well, you know, it takes all kinds. Uh, in Greek mythology, Athena is the goddess of wisdom, war, and arts, industry, justice, and skill, none of which have anything to do with hacking yes. somebody up. Uh, January 20th, after Smith was uh, made his alleged confession, he boarded a Greyhound bus for Florida. Of course, because that's where you go. And when you do crazy stuff, you go to Florida. And arrived in, uh, it says Panana. I think it's supposed to be Panama, Panama. Yeah. City uh, on January 23rd. While Smith was on his journey to Florida, Rob learned of the discovery of Gonzalez's body and contacted police. On Tuesday night, police located Smith at the Lynn Haven apartment. At the time he was arrested, Smith was in the company of a woman who police say was unaware of Smith's actions. Of course she was. And authorities reported that she was fully co- she fully cooperated with the efforts. <laughs> Gonzalez's stepdaughter, 25-year-old Dallas Vasquez from the con- uh, from the Connecticut Post uh, she wants justice for her stepfather's murder. Uh, here it is that my dad was trying to help this guy, telling him to come inside from the cold, Vasquez says. Uh, if my father was helping him stay warm, what kind of person is it who does this? Who repays him by swinging an axe at him and hitting him so hard he blows his brains out? I think we just figured out what that was. <laughs> A crazy person does that. Mm-hmm. Smith is being held on $1 million bond uh, pending extradition to Connecticut. On no, Florida, bond? you can keep him. <laughs> they actually gave him a bond? Yeah, you only have to come up with half of it. When it's a uh, bond, you only have to come up with 500000 He ain't ever getting out. He ain't getting bonded they out. They gave him a bond, which is the opportunity sure. to get out. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> That's not no, right. No one's, no, who's going to come up with $500,000? <sighs> I don't you know. You got that kind still. of jing? I know I don't. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump into our interview with Robert. Before I do, though, I want to say something really quickly, and that is I really want to thank James Nettles out there for donating to the show. We do appreciate it. Um, Anytime anybody donates to the show of any incremental amount, it means a lot to us because it helps us pay the bills and get the stuff that we need to record the show, microphones, all of the stuff, all of the costs, all of the things that go into running a podcast. And James, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so, so much for doing this. If anybody else would like to donate to the show, and we're not begging, okay, yes, we are. Uh, if you go to the Project Archivist page, <laughs> on the right-hand side, there's a little button to our PayPal thing over there. You click that, and you can donate to us through PayPal. Also, uh, we do have T-shirts that are still available, but unfortunately, my webmaster is kind of, well, he's kind of, and we haven't quite got the link wow. up on our web page up yet. I'm trying to get that up there. If you join our Facebook page at the very top of our Facebook page, I've got it posted as a sticky. There is a link on there to get T-shirts and stuff from the show because I think somebody did buy a T-shirt last month. Finally, we got somebody did came they? to and bought a shirt. Yeah, I think so. Oh. I think we I think we got a T-shirt sale of some kind or another. I'm not really sure. Maybe a couple. To be honest with you, because our shirt sales have dropped off as of late, but we haven't really been promoting them. Um, because that's on Cafe Press. Buy a shirt. Yeah, buy a shirt. Um, I might try to get some new ones put together here pretty soon. Some new kind did of artwork. Did you see that picture I posted? No, no, I did There's not. There's a picture on our Project Archivist page that my sister Erin made. That Erin Pecor. Well, uh-huh. I knew her as Erin Pecor. She's not since married, but I'll always know her as Erin Pecor. Um, she made a picture. She got a picture. Of me. She asked me to send a picture of myself to her, 
and she made like a Breaking Bad style shirt. <laughs> it's my face smiling with the glasses and it's in black and white and it says absolutely with an exclamation point because I always say it. <laughs> Too she says funny. I should have a she says I should have a shirt made. I'm like, mm, I don't know. All right, let's jump into our interview with Rob. Rob, as always, great guy, very funny. And there is a funny part at the end of the interview where we're coming up on the hour point of the interview. And I'm like, okay, we're at the – well, you know what? You guys will find it. He goes yeah. into this thing where he thinks I call him Mark or I'm talking to somebody named Mark because he just doesn't get what I'm talking about. Um, he does zone out one or two times in the interview because when you listen to this interview, he's literally doing everything off the top of his head. He doesn't have any notes or anything in front of him. He's written a couple on piece of paper, on a piece of paper to remind him of what things to t- to cover. But he literally is doing all of this from the top of his head, like on the phone, just going, you know. And we just let him go, and that's why we love Rob. So we'll see Absolutely. all you guys at the other side, and we'll probably cover a couple of more than in the second half of the show, and then we'll call it good. So see you folks over there. All right, Rob, welcome back. Normally, I wouldn't throw guests back on this quickly, but um, I was uh, talking with you on Facebook, and I had mentioned that we were doing axe murderers, and we wanted to cover Lizzie Borden, and you know a lot about Lizzie Borden, and your book is almost, uh, you said it's off to the publisher, and it should be coming out October 2nd, I believe you said it was? Yes, yes, it should be. So this Ooh. is going to be your first new book in how long? How many years has it been since you released uh, President's I... Vampire? don't remember uh five six seven probably seven or eight years i would assume uh, it might be yeah i, I was so. i've been busy yeah you've been you're getting back into the whole writing scheme of things now which is pretty cool well no i've always been writing it's just that uh i was not writing books because it's uh i, I put a lot into the books and it's pretty exhausting so now i'm just going to go back to writing magazine articles for a while we got you on here primarily to talk about Lizzie Borden because you seem to know a lot about Lizzie Borden. And I think if me and Lobo were to try to cover it ourselves, we would miss something or screw something up or something along those lines. So misspeak, you know. Or pronounce the name wrong or whatever. But uh, <laughs> you know you know Lizzie, and Lizzie seems to be one of, as, as you'd said on Facebook, is one of your favorite topics to talk about. Yeah, um, it is. In fact, if uh, if there weren't, if I had something new to add, I would definitely write a book on Lizzie Borden. But I don't. It seems like it's been covered fairly extensively. I don't think there's too much more out there that can really be found. But I guess within the last year, they found a bunch of new information out as well. So, um, where do we start? How do we start with Lizzie Borden? Why don't we talk well, about who she was and all that stuff? Well, we can start with Fall River itself, the, okay. the city. Uh, Fall River is in Massachusetts, and in 1892, when the murders occurred, it was, I think, the textile capital of the world. It was producing more textiles than anyone else. Uh, So it was a rich city. It was a city that had its tensions and had its difficulties, like all cities. There were a lot of new immigrants coming in, um, and uh, most of them were working in the textile mills. There were... Rich, there were a lot. There were several rich families that controlled it. Uh, one of them was the Borden family, but the Borden family that Lizzie comes from, the branch of the Borden family that Lizzie came from, was not one of the wealthy ones. Her father, uh, Andrew, was an undertaker and a furniture maker when he was young, and that he he ended up as one of the richest men in Fall River. But that was solely by his own hard work. That's kind of an uh, unusual combination of things to be into. You know, no, yeah. it's actually not. Uh, furniture makers 
were often coffin makers. Oh yeah, that mm-hmm. okay, that makes sense. All right. Yeah, yeah. and so he he made coffins, and uh, he he was also he also was an undertaker, but he ended up as the president of a bank, and made a lot of money. Now he was married twice. His first wife uh, was the mother of Lizzie. Well, well, first of Emma, who was the oldest. There was a second daughter who died in infancy, and then Lizzie, who was the youngest. Um, they, when after his wife died, his wife died when Lizzie was about two, which would have made Emma about twelve. Uh, Andrew remarried to a woman named Abby Durfee. Now the Durfees are also a big family in uh, in Fall River, but he married her, and she presumably acted as the girl's mother for most of their lives, although it, they ended up estranged from each other. There is a lot of speculation about what was going on in the Borden household, but the fact is not an awful lot is known. However, we do know that Lizzie and presumably Emma wanted to live a better life than they were living. Their father was a wealthy man, but they were living in a working-class neighborhood, more of a middle-class neighborhood, which was, certainly was not bad, but they wanted to live up on the hill with the other Bordens. They wanted more servants. They wanted uh, vacations and trips. And because Andrew kept the, you know, kept the family in this working-class neighborhood, it might have also cut Emma and Lizzie off from uh, finding a man in their own class to marry, because neither one of them ever married. So there was this tension between their father, who was just, he's often described as a miser, but he couldn't have been a complete miser because he the girls uh, had all the dresses they wanted, and uh, he probably tried to make Lizzie, he probably tried to satisfy her urge for extravagant live well better I know you're living. going with yeah yeah he said so he sent her on decadence. A, a, well hardly decadence i mean yeah. decadence for them would have consisted of uh going on the grand tour of europe mm. which is which he did send her on mm-hmm. but then she came back to fall river and their house mm-hmm. on second avenue which is a very sturdy and substantial house it's still there and it's a bed and breakfast now um, yeah, one of our listeners actually just stayed there last week. <laughs> it's supposed to be very nice. It's right across yeah. the street from the bus station. I had read somewhere that the house didn't even have indoor plumbing. For as wealthy no, as they did, were, he was a very, uh, he was a very, he, he was a miser. He didn't want to spend any money. It didn't so, have indoor plumbing. It didn't have gas. Uh, mm-hmm. It didn't have, uh, certainly didn't have electricity. So they used coal lamps and uh, it, and they had one servant, Bridget, who, uh, did pretty much everything, and uh, the house is also unusual in that it doesn't have any hallways. It's, uh, for example, the upstairs, you have to go from one bedroom to get to another bedroom, mm-hmm. um, except, That's for not unusual. La- except for the landing. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not what they call the shotgun apartment, where, you have to, where it's room to room to room, but the, the, the rooms uh, let off from the, from the landing, the front landing, um, upstairs. The upstairs was divided into two. There was a back staircase and a front staircase. Uh, the, the Bordens 
Mr. and Mrs. Borden lived in the back staircase, but there were doorways connecting them to, li- to Lizzie's room and Emma's room and the guest room, uh, but those were kept locked. Mm-hmm. They were kept locked because, presumably because of something odd that once happened. Again, there's not a lot that's known about what was going on in the Borden household. There's a lot of speculation about how it was, uh, how there were these they were living on top of each other and that there was incredible tension and that Lizzie hated her stepmother and she apparently did not like her, but she was, she loved her father. Um, but one of the odd things that happened before the murders was there was a daylight break in into the house and Lizzie's stepmother's desk, Abby's desk was broken into uh, money was taken, I think $50, some jewelry, some uh, some trolley tickets, things like that were stolen. Now, in order for this daylight robbery to have occurred, the thief would have had to get past Lizzie, Emma, and Bridget, who were all home. So the, the, they called the police, but after a very short time, Andrew called off the investigation, probably because he had decided that Lizzie did it. Uh, Lizzie had a reputation for doing some strange things. She was supposedly a shoplifter, and that plays into the story, too. According to one of the, 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 the commonly told stories about Lizzie was that all the shopkeepers knew that when they saw Lizzie stealing something, to just bill Andrew for it at the end of the month. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's well. awesome. But wasn't she involved in like Christian organizations and stuff like that? She was well, um she was a she, treasurer of some other or- Christian organization or something. Well, so, she was she didn't have a lot of opportunities to socialize except for the church. So, uh she was a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and I think she was the treasurer of the Fruit and Flower Society. So <laughs> Well, you, that's so, prestigious, huh? Well, you know, well it, so it's I'm just kind of I'm trying to set the mood for what the uh, what Lizzie and Emma and the Bordens were. They were extremely respectable people. Um, they were wealthy. Andrew was Andrew was as the president of a bank. He was powerful, and they were not the kind of people that you expected to be killed with a hatchet. No. Certainly not by their own daughter. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody really expects to be killed by a hatchet, though. No, I know. I have some friends that you completely expect them to be killed with a hatchet. <laughs> I mean, there are some people who go through life asking for it, but the Bordens were true. not were not among them. Again, this was a uh, Andrew. By the time they died, Andrew was seventy. Um, Abby was sixty-four, sixty-five. Uh, they, and, and again, they just they led a very quiet life. The murders took place on August fourth, eighteen six eighteen ninety two, rather. Excuse me. A date, one of which is one of the reasons I got interested in the murders because August fourth is my birthday. So, Lizzie Borden is my birthday murder. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know if um, people that are really involved in the Lizzie Borden case call themselves something like. I don't know if there's a Borden equivalent of ripperologist. Bordenologists? I don't, I don't know if they call themselves Bordenologists or Lizziologists or any of those Axemen? It could be. But uh, they, they have, uh, they are, they, they're always producing new theories and things like that. 
but what what actually happened was uh, again on the on the morning of August fourth, eighteen ninety two. It was one of the hottest days in Fall River history, and the Bordens, the adult Bordens, uh, had a, had a cousin staying with them. It was he was called Uncle John. Uh, Uncle John's last name was Morse, and he was Andrew's first wife's brother. So he was Andrew's brother-in-law from his first marriage. He was staying with them mm. in the uh, front bedroom. He was sleeping in the front bedroom, and he had breakfast with Andrew and Abby. Andrew and Abby always ate uh, a separate meal from Lizzie and Emma, possibly because of the tension that existed between uh, Ab- between Abby and her her stepchildren. If there was tension, it wasn't Abby's fault. From everything everyone said, she was a very easygoing woman. Uh, but I, I mean, again, we don't know what went on in the house, so we can speculate endlessly. But there was tension between uh, Lizzie and Abby. Uh, hmm. Something happened at some point, and Lizzie stopped calling her mother and began calling her Mrs. Borden. So there was there was certain tension there. According to Bridget, who actually lived there, she said she never noticed anything. But Bridget was did not Bridget was not a, uh, a from Fall River. Uh, she came from a very different background, and she might not have recognized a tense household because where she came from, a tense household was probably a lot louder than the <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, was she Puerto Rican? Yeah, <laughs> she was. Irish. Attention! Oh, good lord! Yes. She was yeah. Irish, and she wasn't used to that. Okay, all right. I, I don't think she would have been used to a family argument that consisted of everyone being silent. No, throwing, yelling, drunken fist fight. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> I would like to point out that I am not saying any of these things. I'm just implying them. I was, I was talking um, about my family. <laughs> But anyway, something was going on that morning. They had a horrible breakfast. There was a piece of mutton there that they had been working on for days. And by the Ugh. time – and it had gone bad, but they were still eating it because Andrew Ugh. Andrew was just – he didn't like to waste things. So they had, they had gone over mutton soup for breakfast along with bananas and cookies. Bananas? Uh, yes. <laughs> Somebody once said that – he, that, he suspected that that was the breakfast was the cause of the murders. <laughs> but, as, again, something was going on that morning. Uncle John left to go visit relatives, and Abby sent Bridget out to wash the windows. This was unusual in itself because Abby was not a spick-and-span house cleaner. Uh, she was not a spick-and-span housekeeper, rather, and uh, Bridget had a pretty easy job as maid's go in 19th century Fall River, uh, and this was unusual to send her out to wash the windows on the hottest day of the year. But she went out and she was washing the windows, and something, uh, apparently Abby received a note. This is the story, anyway, that Abby received a note from somebody telling her to meet them somewhere. But whatever the truth about that, we know that she went upstairs and she was changing the sheets in uh, Uncle John's room when someone came up behind her and struck her 19 times in the back of the head with a hatchet and uh, killed her, leaving her there on the floor. Mm-hmm. That was a been about 
9 o'clock, 9.15 in the morning. Now, Andrew had gone out. Uh, he, had, he had gone to work. But probably that mutton wasn't sitting too well on his stomach, and he came back early. Uh, <laughs> he was back by about 11, which was much earlier than he normally came home. Uh, while all this was going on, Emma was away. She was visiting friends. This was also unusual. But Emma was away, and Lizzie said that she was ironing handkerchiefs in the kitchen or possibly reading a magazine, depending on which version of her story you believe or that you're reading at the time. But she apparently greeted her father, who had come home early. Uh, she helped him get his boots off, and he looks like he took uh, he lay down on the parlor sofa with his head facing the doorway some point someone came up behind him and struck him 10 or 11 times on the side of his head with a hatchet and effectively cut the right side of his head pretty much off i think the nursery Wait. rhyme says it was 11 times no, no for, the nurse, uh, nursery rhyme says 41 yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. So they, they do have the sequence right, but so not the numbers. Okay. Mm. Uh, but Andrew was certainly dead. And in fact, yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, it, it knocked <laughs> one of his eyes out. Oh, oh well, you know, like you do. Uh, yeah. Uh, the blood must have been everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, at about 11.30, Bridget is resting in her room upstairs, and she hears Lizzie call something like, Bridget, come down. They've come in and killed Father. Uh, Bridget comes down, and they call the neighbors, and they call the doctor who lives across the street, uh, although I think it's a little too late for the doctor. And people are coming in, they're inspecting what's going on, and then suddenly someone says, oh my goodness, what about Mrs. Borden? And they go up the stairs, and they can see her probably from the stairs, lying on the floor uh, of, the, of the guest room. Uh, again, uh, another bloody mess. Oof. Now, at this point, the, this, I finally, at some point, they did call the police, and the police show up, and this was something way out of their league. They did not know what to do. Uh, someone said that the Fall River police spent most of their time rounding up drunks and uh, doing, checking an occasional burglary. And that was, that was pretty much the extent of, of their duties. So a double homicide with two people at home and, uh, two, and the rich, one of the richest men in the city lying there dead and his wife dead upstairs. This was something that was really out, outside their... Uh, this was something they should not have even tried to tackle. Mm -hmm. But what else could they do? So they had to start the investigation. Now... Wasn't if, the investigation really botched, though? It was botched, but you've got to give them a little slack. It was... What were they going to do? Were they going to strip search the daughter the 32-year-old daughter of this extremely respectable family to see mm -hmm. if she had blood on her. It was just, we can't really imagine the difficulties, the, the social barriers that they had to, that they would have been dealing with. And I'm not saying this like this was a conscious thing. This was the way people thought. 
the the daughter of the the member the, the treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society that was the name of one of her groups is not about to pick up a hatchet and cleave her father's head off yeah it just wouldn't it be beyond their conception so the first thought was that it must have been a maniac a complete lunatic because no one else would do something like that um problem was of course that every that Bridget and Lizzie were home Lizzie was outside Bridget was outside washing the windows and Lizzie was doing something in the house and there was a gruesome murder no one saw anyone coming in and this again this was a, a house without a lot of hallways you had to go through rooms to get to other rooms mm-hmm. but someone and, and the front door was locked that's something else I forgot to mention you know you really you want to lay this thing out almost like a locked room detective mystery. I, I should have laid out all the <laughs> the parameters of what was going on. Well, go ahead but, if you want. Well, I can't because we've already skipped that part. Okay. <laughs> it was <laughs> the door was locked. <laughs> and moving and, on. <laughs> and in fact, when uh, Andrew came home, uh, Bridget had to open the door for him, uh-huh. so he couldn't get in. Anyway, so from their point of view, somebody had to hide in the house for an hour or an hour and a half, covered in blood, with a hatchet, with two people in the house. They then had to get by the two other people and kill Andrew, then get out of the house without anyone seeing them, and get down the block and somehow escape. Now, this just didn't seem all that possible and it was just but again if it wasn't a maniac their next idea was it had to be an immigrant because no native-born american would do such a <laughs> of thing of course not of, of course, course not. not no how could that possibly be right now <laughs> it took them a week but they just it just everything kept pointing to lizzie because First of all, her response to some of the police questions were very strange. Uh, somebody had said to her something along the lines of, your mother and father were murdered. And her response was, "Was she is not my mother, sir. She is my stepmother. My mother died in childhood. This struck people as strange. Mm-hmm. Um, Lizzie was not acting the way she was supposed to act. She wasn't she grieving or just... She hadn't fainted. She seemed very composed. At the same time, the, the doctor from across the street was giving her stuff to calm her, to keep her calm. Mm-hmm. So if Lizzie... They're probably giving her laudanum. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that. Might very well have been. Uh, Lizzie was seemed very calm this whole time, too calm for the police. Mm-hmm. And they searched the house, but they searched it about as well as they could. They could not bring themselves to go through Lizzie's closets. They could not bring themselves to um, go through her personal belongings. It just, they couldn't do it. They could not think to do that. So pathetic. But they did, Well, it was just the way things were done. Yeah, uh, I understand. I understand the and time keep in frame. Mind, these, were not, these were not people who were forensically aware. They were True. not people who, this was a long time before people uh, even would think to put up something like crime scene tape. There were people marching through the house. Mm-hmm. 
looking to see what had happened, trying to help, trying to console Lizzie, and all who didn't seem to need much consolation. Um, well, there was we, other things they, too, though, pointing to it too, wasn't there? Like, what, she, what? like she had tried to buy poison or something that uh, the day well, before. Well, I, I was getting to that. Okay, that, go that ahead. Was, we're going. We're, we haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> okay. Let the man well, speak. I'm trying. Well, <laughs> no, no, I'm glad because I, I forget things. Anyway, they, 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 for some reason, they passed over Bridget pretty quickly, which is strange considering that she was an Irish maid. She was not a delicately brought up flower like Lizzie was. And Lizzie certainly never suggested, never even began to suggest that Bridget was responsible. And they, but they simply couldn't come up with any motive for why Bridget would have done it. Because like I said, she had a pretty good job with the Bordens. Uh, Miss, Mrs. Borden was not very demanding. No one in the family was very demanding. I mean, they were eating spoiled mutton for breakfast. So again, these were not <laughs> demanding people. Uh, so Bridget was was passed over, and she refused to to cut to ref, she refused to stay in the house after the murders. Unlike Lizzie, who kept staying in the house, and mm-hmm. it didn't seem to bother her. And Emma came home immediately, and she was staying in the house too. Anyway, it took them a week, and they finally decided that uh, Lizzie is the most likely suspect. They also, I'm sorry, when they were searching the house, they also found some hatchets downstairs. Uh, in the behind the uh, in in the cellar in a, a very out of the way spot, they fa- they found uh, two hatchets and one hatchet head that had apparently been recently washed and dipped in ashes. Now this could have been done to dry it, or it could have been done to give it the appearance of being dusty. Hmm. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So. And also the handle, it had been broke, the handle had been broken off. So, they, uh, you know, and if, if the handle had been broken off, that might have been because it was bloody and couldn't, they couldn't get the blood off it. But who knows? Again, it's speculation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, uh, Lizzie was finally arrested, and there was an inquest held. I think the inquest was held before her arrest. Uh, but during the inquest, she gave very contradictory accounts of what she had been doing that day. Again, this could have been the laudanum talking. But she said that while her mother, her stepmother and her father were being killed, she was, again, either ironing handkerchiefs, reading a magazine, or she had gone outside to eat uh, some pears off of the tree, or she had gone up to the barn on the hottest day of the year and spent 20 minutes searching around in the dust for a piece of lead in order to make lead sinkers for a planned fishing expedition she was going on with her friends. The police went up there and the dust had not been disturbed in the barn. Can I ask you a question? There was something that I read somewhere about that barn where it had something to do with um, a pigeon's nest or a pigeon's roost. The uh, this was this was one of the the rumors that was circulating, and th- there was a TV movie made about the Borden murders that put a lot of emphasis on this. According to the story, Lizzie kept pigeons up there, and someone had some boys had broken into the barn to try to steal the pigeons, and this got her father so angry that he killed all the pigeons with an axe. That's the story. Okay. Uh, whether it actually happened or not, who knows? 
Okay. Uh, that, but again, it's one of the, the many legends that surround the Borden story. Uh, it, again, it's possible Lizzie was loved animals. She was crazy about animals. And I can't imagine she would have let her father get away with something like that. Um, there was, I mean, just to give you an idea, the, the Borden women might have been unmarried, and they might have been spinsters, but they were not exactly trodden down. Uh, again, Lizzie, Lizzie was friend. very attractive. Yeah, I was going to say, she looks, pretty, she looks pretty cute here in the picture that I'm seeing well, of her. Well, you know, that's a funny thing about Lizzie, because Lizzie was an attractive woman. She was an intelligent woman. Um, she was a she was an interesting woman too she was not a she was not dull uh but we'll we'll, we'll get back to that because um because <laughs> yeah, i'm looking at google images and she's got that look in her eye you know she's got that wicked little look but i th- i think lizzie was a handsome woman myself i think so too uh, i would agree with that yeah uh, but then she was a redhead Oh, well, I'm sold. better. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Done deal. Anyways, we're pulling you off course again. Go ahead. <laughs> but Anyway, Lizzie was finally arrested, and she was taken to jail in Taunton because there was no facilities for uh, keeping a woman in jail in Fall River. And I think the trial took place – it took place in 1893. She had the best defense that anyone could ask for. Uh, One of her lawyers had been Andrew's lawyer. Uh, One of her lawyers – was the former governor of the state who had appointed the judge of the trial to his job. Mm-hmm. And there was a third lawyer whose name I don't remember at the moment. Um, in fact, I, I think the governor, I think his name was Robinson. Um, and he, again, he, he had appointed the judge of the case. There were two things that were not allowed to be entered into evidence. One of them was the druggist who claimed that Lizzie had come into his drugstore a week before the murders and had tried to buy a dime's worth of prussic acid in order mm. to clean a sealskin cape. Supposedly she wanted to poison the, uh, the moths that were infesting her cape. Now, the druggist refused to sell it to her without a prescription. Now, this bit of evidence was never, the, the jury never heard it. The, there was another bit that they were not allowed to hear, and that was her contradictory, um, her contradictory statements that were given at the inquest and during the investigation. So they never heard that one version in which she was ironing handkerchiefs, the other version where she was up in the barn when, when she couldn't possibly have been. Uh, the other version where she was out eating pears. And I think she also said she got sick, which might have been that mutton again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, so, I had been told that they removed they removed um, mom and dad's stomach and tested them for acids, but that for poisons, uh, because they thought that the milk and the meat might have been poisoned or something like that. Well, there was, was that true? A, there was a rough – they did do an autopsy on the Bordens, the uh, – it was done right in the room where Andrew had died. Um, they, they, they did check them. The results were interesting, though. I, I don't know that they – I assume they checked for poison. It mm-hmm. doesn't seem likely, though, because both of their heads had been axed in. So I, they might not have checked their – Well, that's another thing. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but what was interesting about the autopsy, and this was actually very interesting, was that they found some gilding or guilt – in Mrs. Borden's head, 
that means that the axe that was used was new because they would put a thin layer of gilt on the edge of axes to keep the sharp edge from from uh, rusting. Uh-huh. So you you could sell it for a long time without having to worry about it rusting. They found gilding in her skull. That means a brand new axe had been used to kill her. They didn't find any of the gilding in Andrew's skull. So so it might have all come off in, in Abby's skull. Mm-hmm. Now that means that those three hatchet heads they found down in the in the basement couldn't possibly have been used. Now they were the, the skulls of the Bordens were produced at the trial, and the hatchet the broken off hatchet head was shown that it could fit the um, the, the, the the skulls, but it was so could the the hatchets found in the kitchen of almost every house in Fall River because everyone had a hatchet they used it for kindling and breaking up coal and doing lots of things. Didn't so she faint when she saw the skulls at the yes, trial or did. something? She did. It's very I didn't know if that was true either. Yeah, she did. She fainted when she saw the skull. She took up fainting during the uh, during the <laughs> trial. <laughs> the uh, nice. it, It's very likely that the prosecu- that that her defense lawyers did. I, they really knew what they were doing. I mean, this these were the best team she could get. And in all probability, it was their idea to have Emma and Lizzie offer a $5,000 reward for information resulting in the capture of whoever murdered their parents. I think O.J. Simpson put out a reward for his wife, (laughs) for his ex-wife, too. Uh, I think he told her to be a little less stoic, to start fainting uh, during the right times, and she did. Lizzie wasn't a fool. And I don't think any of this means she's guilty. It's just that they were doing exactly what they could to get her to get her found not guilty. How many people have you brutally murdered? Brutal is a very subjective word. I mean, what's brutal to one person might be totally reasonable to somebody else. All right, everybody, that'll do it for part one. I'll cut it off right here. We'll pick it up in a couple of days. You guys know how this works. We'll finish off our interview with Robert, and then we'll cover a few more axe murderers, and we'll call it to a close. Talk to you guys in a few days. Peace. My axe is my bunty. I bring him when I walk. Me and my axe will leave your head outlined in charge. My axe is my bunty. He always makes me laugh. Me and my axe cut big and spinal cords in hair. My axe is my bunty. And when I wind him back, me and my axe will give your forehead a butt crack. My axe is my bunty. I never leave without him. Me and my ex will leave your neck a bloody fountain. Chip, chip, chip. Everybody, 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 Murdering, murdering, murdering.
but I do know obscure stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What's wrong with that? Well, you live in New York. You don't necessarily need to you drive really a car. You don't really know. That's the thing. All right. Uh, here we go. He runs up and he grabs one of them, man. Like a guy that big can snap a woman's neck like a pencil stick. So I can run up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah. You are interested in the unknown. The mysterious. The unexplainable. That is why you are here. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're going to pick up right where we left off in our conversation with Robert about Lizzie Borden. Then we're going to wrap that up, cover a couple of more axe murderers, and then we'll bring the show to a close. So see you guys at the other side. Anyway, the trial went on for a long time by 19th century standards. Uh, A murder trial in the 19th century could easily be done in a day or even half a day. But this went on for over a week, I think 12 days, 10 or 12 days. And the prosecutor, I believe, argued that the only explanation anyone could come up with was that, uh, that Lizzie had killed them for money because... There was something going on in that house where Andrew had given, and again, Andrew was 70 at a time when life expectancy was pretty low, and he had apparently 
moved some property. He had given some property to his wife, Abby, and was allowing her relatives to live in this house. Yeah. So they, they, they had a rent-free place to live. And I believe the house was owned by Abby. It, was, it became her property. Now, Lizzie and Emma demanded something comparable. And so Andrew gave them a farm, and then he bought it back from them, giving them the money. So again, Andrew might have been miserly, but the girls were the girls, the women were not exactly wanting for things. Mm-hmm. Apparently uh, not. No, they <laughs> weren't. Uh, so again, perhaps Lizzie had a motivation to kill him because she wanted to go live up on the hill with the rest of the Bordens, but. Another thing about the murder for money idea that's a little bit of a of a reach is that Andrew died without a will, which meant mm. that all of the money went to Emma, not to Lizzie. Mm-hmm. So when Andrew died, Emma inherited everything. Of course, killing Abby first meant she wouldn't inherit. Uh, then killing Andrew meant that Emma would. So... Lizzie, let's say Lizzie decided to kill Andrew and Abby for the money. She had to work on the assumption that her sister would share it with her, which is not always a safe assumption when large amounts of money are concerned. But Emma was something, was considered kind of a mouse. She was not a strong character while Lizzie was. And at the end of the day, when the trial was over and Lizzie was found not guilty, she fainted, or she, no, no, she didn't faint. She put her head forward and collapsed in tears. And considering she was on trial for her life, this was a reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind, though, that I think the last woman who was hanged in Massachusetts was Bathsheba Spooner, mm-hmm. uh, long time before. But no one, simply no one, could believe that this woman even though she had motive and even though she had opportunity, could do something so out of character that this uh, wealthy, well-brought-up Christian woman who was constantly involved in the church and church activities, who had never done anything beyond rumors of her being a shoplifter and rumors of her trying to buy poison, and keep in mind that part of the reason that might not have been allowed was that it might not have been that firm a uh, a, a witness. That they, they simply could not conceive of this woman doing what she was accused of doing. And when the judge gave the uh, the jury his summing up, somebody said called that it said it was essentially a direction to acquit. He simply could not believe it. No one could believe it. I mean, it was an all-male jury, and here they are looking at Lizzie, this attractive, well-brought-up woman, and they couldn't conceive of it. So she was found not guilty. She went home to Fall River in triumph. Everyone congratulated her. You know, during the whole trial, she was received support from everyone. All the people of Fall River, they believed, they couldn't accept the possibility that Lizzie could have done this. A woman of her class and her position could have done this. However, after she went back to Fall River, something changed. The first time she went back to church, she went to the pew that the Borden family owned, 
and none of the pews around it were occupied. They were every one of mm. them empty. So everybody turned on her. <laughs> Everyone turned on her. That's Even her up. friend Alice Russell, who um, Alice Russell saw Lizzie do one of the many suspicious things that Lizzie did, which was uh, a few days after the murder, she burned a, her dress in the uh, in the stove in the kitchen, saying, "Oh, this thing's covered with paint." Now paint, this was, huh? kind of, yeah, <laughs> mm. red paint. <laughs> it was paint. Well, at that point. It would be brown paint. <laughs> it was paint. Uh, and in fact, at the trial, uh, I know that Emma testified that, in fact, the dress was ruined with paint. That doesn't mean that it didn't have anything else on it, though, but uh, it, it, had been, it apparently had been ruined by paint. Now, let's just say that Lizzie had decided to kill her parents with a hatchet. A dress that was already ruined with paint might be a good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, think- of course, afterwards... Lizzie was ostracized, completely ostracized by the people of Fall River. She did not leave, however. Emma divided the money with her, and they bought a very nice house called Maplecroft. So they continued to live together then? They continued to live together uh, for quite a while. Lizzie uh, continued to do charity work. She was, even if she was ostracized socially, she continued to do charity work. She was no longer referred to, she changed her, she was no longer referred to as Lizzie. She was now known as Lizbeth. Hmm. And again, she and Emma lived together in Maplecroft, which was a beautiful house on the hill. Uh, They had all the servants they could want. Lizzie had all the pets she could want. But Lizzie also uh, began to get friends in the theater world. Now, the theater world was considered about as unrespectable as you could get in the 19th century, short of being an axe murderess. And she would hold parties for theater people that she would meet on her trips to Boston. Um, and she apparently developed a very intense, re- uh, she began, uh, uh, developed a very intense relationship with an actress named Nance O'Neill, who lived long enough to, uh, she actually appears in uh, one or two movies, uh, very early movies. Wow. But whatever the relationship is, and you can imagine what the rumors are about it, um, whatever the relationship was, Emma was so shocked by these theater people hanging around her house that she left, and I don't think she and uh, Lizzie ever communicated after that again. Lizzie kept on living in Maplecroft, and uh, she she had all of her pets, and she finally died, I think, of... Complications following gallbladder surgery in 1927. Uh, Emma died a few days afterwards, and I believe they're all buried together. The whole family is buried together. Hmm. In her will, Liz, uh, Lizzie left some money to her servants, uh, a few bequests to friends, and $30,000 to the Animal Rescue League, which she belonged to. That Lizzie was a lot animals. of money back then. That, it, this was 1927. So That's a lot of money to leave yeah, to the Animal Rescue Organization. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, keep in mind, Emma didn't need it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lizzie didn't really, I don't suppose she had any relatives or anyone else that she felt close enough to that she would want to give such a large bequest to them. And... You know, the, uh, since then, the house went into disrepair. Uh, it was, 
I don't know that it was Fall River's dirty secret. I, I don't know really what happened too much after that, but I do know that over time, people became more interested in the Lizzie Borden case. It was the big media case of the day. Mm. Uh, until the Lindbergh case, it was probably... Well, first came Lizzie Borden, then came the Halls Mills case in uh, New Jersey, which was uh, the big case of the 1920s, until the Lindbergh case came along, and then that put everything else in the shade. Yeah, that buried uh, everybody. Right. But the Liz, the uh, the uh, Borden case was a was it was it was huge at the time, and it was very well covered. The uh, in the last few years, the the really interesting bits that have survived the axe head, uh, a piece I think of Mrs. Borden's hair. Her I, I think her um, her she had a she had a braided hair, and I think it was cut off and saved as evidence. Uh, bits and pieces, scraps of evidence were all returned to Lizzie after the case, and she gave it to one of her lawyers, and he put it in his attic. And eventually that was turned... And it, he kept it in this uh, in a tub called a hip bath, and it's been it's still referred to as the hip bath collection. So oh. eventually, eventually it found its way, though, to the Fall River Historical Society. And over the years, they have uncovered... A lot more information about Lizzie. Uh, the the in, the image of her as this stoic kind of cold woman is contradicted by very warm letters that she wrote to friends and family. Uh, she there was a lot more to her than the image of her as the axe murderess or the cold daughter. Uh, the woman who who insisted on correcting them when they called her stepmother her mother, uh, and uh, here she is, is this very pleasant old woman who loved animals, and was very fo- very fond of children, and whether she did it or not has never been resolved. Uh, you know, we really do have to keep in mind she was found not guilty. Hmm. Yeah, same, but <laughs> at the same time, there is no other viable suspect. Well, I know that yeah, there true. was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There was another axe murder that had happened nearby, yes. uh, in the area or something like that as well. Yes, yes, there was, but there was never any connection that could be made to the Borden murders. And keep in mind, let's say that it was the same killer. Okay, how did he get into the house through the locked doors? past Bridget, past Lizzie, who was supposedly ironing handkerchiefs, to get up to Mrs. To, up, up to the bed, the guest room, kill Mrs. Borden with a hatchet, hide for an hour and a half, then kill Mr. Borden, then get out of the house without anyone seeing a man with a hatchet covered in blood. I'm not saying aliens, yeah. but aliens. <laughs> Well, also, wasn't wasn't Lizzie reportedly spotted seeing uh, stealing a hatchet before this I happened? Uh, that I think comes from that TV movie about her. Okay, uh, I think that's the origin of that story, where Lizzie stole a hatchet. But keep in mind, as a shoplifter, if she did steal a hatchet, that would explain the gilding that was on the edge. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it would have been a new hatchet. You don't steal a used hatchet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, it's but that's pure speculation. 
<laughs> Seems like there was a lot of that flying around. Yeah, that's, this is all weird. Okay, what are the possibilities that if Lizzie didn't do it, that the other sister did? Emma wasn't in uh, Fall River. She Not, was visiting what, The other one that was in the house with Lizzie. The other one, the other person in the house was Bridget. Yeah. And there have been stories about Bridget. There have been stories that uh, she might have been paid off to keep quiet. Mm. There have even been stories that she and Lizzie were having a, an affair and that Emma found ball. out about it and that Lizzie killed her in a lesbian rage oh. and then went on to kill her father in a lesbian rage. Uh, I've never really right. met a ragey lesbian. I don't know. Uh, is that I have, but I don't see them being axe murderers. <laughs> oh. it, it's, again, you can speculate anything. There's yeah. just no evidence for it. Well, it had to be. It has to be one of the two that were in the house. It almost certainly does. But so, there are other possibilities. Let's say Lizzie orchestrated it. Maybe she lets a third party into the house. But then the other person would have saw it, unless that person, of course, was paid off. Well, Bridget but was that out just with washing like, the windows. You see, you can go back and forth like this forever. Oh God. Um, yeah, but how did they the, not hear a body drop that for hour and a half before interesting, the old interesting man you should was mention that. Interesting you should mention that. People that have been to the, the, the uh, Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast uh-huh. can't help but notice what a solid house it is. You really don't hear a lot of things from it. It's not one of those old creaky board houses, one of those old uh, 19th century tumble-down Victorian houses. It is a very solid house. And back in 1892, mm. it must have been even more solid. Yeah, I mean, if you're if it's as solid now as they're saying it is, right? still, you gotta be... I mean, you're, you're no, talking well, about something that weighs at least 100 pounds falling. Well, Miss, Miss Abby was a lot yeah. more than 100 pounds. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> Flabby Abby hit the ground. Abby she was a big woman. Noise. Abby was a big Flabby woman. Abby. Okay, so let's say she's two. Let's, let's say she's two bills. That and hitting I, the ground is going to make noise. Well, keep in mind, first of all, she was on. She might have been on her knees changing the sheets. Oh, true. Yeah. Right. Also, the, ro- also the room was carpeted. Also, that's, she for was, a big woman, that's going to be a lot of. You have a floor <laughs> full of memory foam. It's still going to make noise. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I would, I would imagine also, and this is pure speculation on my part, I would imagine the windows were open because it was so hot. Right, exactly. So they didn't hear anybody go, oh, or anything. <laughs> I mean, you get <laughs> hit with an axe, you're not just going to not make I got hit with a hammer in the forehead when I was a kid and I made noise. I don't so, know, man. But, well, this was most likely she would have been stunned into silence yeah. at the first blow. Yeah. But still, that's still 19 chops with an axe to the back of the head. It must make some kind of noise. I know what it sounds like to break through bone with sharp things. It's not quiet. What have you been it doing? It makes noise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you ever tried to butcher like a chicken? Have you ever tried to butcher chicken or, or cut through ribs on, you know, like a pork rib cage or, or neighbors? a cow rib cage? And neighbors. No, I never have. It huh. makes noise. There's it ain't a, and, that bad. It, it makes a crunching sound when you're splitting through bone. There's a crunching sound. Yeah, but and still, that's just though, the chicken. having not been at the house, I know we, we know we know of at least one listener that was there last week. That's probably going to come through with a ton of emails about this. Oh, so, good, good, good. Putting all that aside, yeah, we have a listener that was literally just there a couple of days ago as well, we record this right now. I, I want I want to visit it. I will visit it someday. Mm-hmm. But um, it's only two hours from my house. Oh, really? 
Mm-hmm. Keep, keep in mind, though, that I'm going by what I've read and yeah. what I've heard. Yeah. So uh, I can't speak for myself. I just know that according to the people that should know what they're talking about, uh, that the house is very well made and very solid. Well, if it's still mm-hmm. around today and it's still being used, did they continue to own the house after this all came, when it was Liz, over with? Liz, yeah. Lizzie and Emma sold it and moved up to Maplecroft. Yeah. I don't know who lived there immediately afterwards. Okay. Uh, it might have been hard to rent for a little while. You well, think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going on an hour here, so I didn't want to keep you super long, and you've pretty much covered everything. I, I do want to ask you a couple of the off-the-wall questions, sure. though. I had read somewhere um, that um, – that the skulls that were left over from the trial because they beheaded the mother and father to use that in the trial and bring the skulls to the trial, which in itself is pretty gruesome and strange. I couldn't imagine being in the courtroom and having your mom and dad's skulls in front of you being administered. Depends on how angry you are with them. That's true. Um, Lizzie did faint. So could have been coked. Anyways, um, (laughs) the, the skulls, what were the bodies? I'm assuming the bodies were buried without the heads, correct? I think they had to exhume the bodies to get the heads. Because I had read somewhere that the bodies were the, – the skulls – the heads were placed at the – buried at the foot of the graves, of each of the graves. I don't uh, know how true that is. But. I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't know. Okay. Uh, there are so many stories floating around. Uh, I mean one – there's one man who has a theory that the murders were committed by Andrew Borden's illegitimate son. Hmm. There are some people that claim – that Lizzie had a boyfriend who did it. Uh, some people claim she was having an affair with the doctor across the street and that he somehow helped in the cover-up. There are endless theories. It's not quite Jack the Ripper. Yeah. That's, um, the, that's but, the other thing that I was, I was going to say. Okay, Jack the Ripper was 1888. This was in 1892, Correct. That's, I mean, they, for the time period, Jack the Ripper, the the amount of research and everything else that they did, they did a better job, it seems, for all intents and purposes. I mean, never caught anybody, but. A Metropolitan Police Department with uh, a lot of experience is going to do better. True, Scotland Yard, yeah. Yeah, they're going to do better than Fall River, the Fall River Police, and keep in mind also that. Scotland Yard was dealing with poor people and immigrants. Lizzie was rich, respectable, and they were not going to go go through her stuff. I mean, Victoria Lincoln wrote a good book about uh, about Lizzie Borden, uh, in which she gives possible explanations for how Lizzie could have done it. She grew up uh, next to the. next to the Borden house. I think she might have even known Lizzie as a child. Uh, and she, she, she once asked her, her mother why Mrs. Borden was, why Miss Borden was shunned by everyone. And her mother said that Miss, Miss Borden had been unkind to her parents. Unkind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But, uh, but Victoria Lincoln, she, she believes th- that Lizzie did it. And... Uh, she has a whole theory that Lizzie suffered from something called temporal lobe epilepsy and that she had funny spells and that it was during one of her funny spells that she did this. Whatever. You, what? I, 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 I'm just telling you what her theory was. I wow. don't I don't see it myself. 
but she believes that Lizzie committed the murder, and the reason that she was not covered in blood... I, I, I don't know exactly how she would have cleaned off You're completely blood. covered here. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. She did it naked. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some some people think she did it naked. Yeah, but she still had to clean up. That's and the one somebody, that I heard a lot. As of somebody that she'd somebody naked. once pointed out that a woman brought up in the time and place that Lizzie Borden was would probably have been very glad to cleave her father's head off before she would appear before him naked. It just it's just nah, the idea of it is what, shocking. Know about but, that. Well, <laughs> keep in mind though that it wouldn't, have just been her, it wouldn't have just been her body; it would have also been her hair. Uh, mm. And there was not a speck of blood found on Lizzie. But, of course, she was not very thoroughly checked. Hmm. Well, Victoria Lincolns believed that uh, Lizzie did it and that she hung the dress inside of another dress. which is, And that would never even occur to most men to think about. I, I remember somebody said it, that this is a problem that women who have more dresses than hangers often have to deal with. And what they do is they <laughs> hang one dress inside another dress. Yeah. I remember reading that and thinking to myself, they do? Yeah. Because mm. that never occurred to me either. Oh, uh, well, I have women in my house. <laughs> I have dresses in mine. Um, and he doesn't have any women either. <laughs> and, that, and that what Lizzie did with the, uh, what Lizzie did with the hatchet was that she hid it in this receptacle that was used as a receptacle for, for uh uh, used menstrual napkins, and this was this oh. was uh, Victoria Lincoln's theory that Lizzie hid it inside this receptacle for used menstrual napkins, and the chances of a 19th century yeah copy going through there policeman going in there were yeah what's slim lower to than none. zero yeah yeah slim so, to none and slim I can just agree with down. that I can agree yeah. with that yes yeah. I mean yeah. I, I I just it's just not going to happen. That wouldn't be a job I would take. Go check. Right. No, I'm not going to check that out. She's clean. She didn't do it. Right. <laughs> you sure? No, I don't want to look in there. Ain't no, no. Wow, you sissy. No, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you Rob. Well, sissy. We're coming it, up on the uh, we're coming up on the hour mark, so uh, I'm going to cut you loose in a minute. But uh, anything else you wanted to say before we let you go, or anything like that, or who's Mark? Mark. <laughs> we're coming up on the hour time frame. How's that? Oh. Sound? <laughs> oh, you were serious. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who's Mark? Shirley, you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That was great. That was freaking great. I'm like, is he serious? <laughs> that was, couldn't have timed that better. That was awesome. It caught me totally off guard. I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. Oh. Anyway, oh, did you have anything else? Or? No, I think that's it. I think we covered it very thoroughly, and uh, I, I was going to quiz you on a few other ones, but I think that's, you know, we're, we're at the hour point, and you've pretty much nailed everything that I could think of to come or up I, with. I, I wish I could have presented it more coherently. No, it's fine. It's great. What it's are you fine. talking I mean, about? Yeah. I mean, you, you're, know, you really are it, pulling all this off the top of your head. You don't have notes really, in front really of you. I really am. And it's natural, and that's just how you do things. That's why we like having you on the show, because you're very oh. easily spoken and stuff. So it's well, not, um, you know. I, I hope that that covers it pretty well. Uh I don't have a last word on Lizzie Borden, except that I don't know if she did it, but I can't imagine how anyone else could have done it. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the camp that she did it. Yeah, so. and, and somebody once said that if she didn't do it, she knows who did it. Yeah, she'd have we, to know who did it. Yeah, yeah it, it it was just, and I, I have a hard time arguing with that. 
No. How do you ar- how do you argue that? I mean, seriously, how would you how would you manage to argue it, even if you could develop an argument? There's it's no, not no. <laughs> She's the only person in the house, and there's two dead people, brutally murdered. Yeah, and the doors are locked, now, and the and, doors and, locked. And I- and I can't, uh, I can't really uh, discuss it here because obviously we're on the radio. But if you look at a, a, a map of that, if you look at the layout of a house, you'll see that it's really, you just can't picture how it could have been done. Right. The one thing that's always bothered me, I mean, I can understand how, how she snuck up on the mother. Mm-hmm. Or we're assuming she snuck up on, snuck up on her stepmother and whacked how do you not wake up with the first initial hit when you're laying down? Uh, or at least try to done, move or fight back? The, there were no wounds the on his hands. Well, it's like getting hit in the head with a hammer, blunt force yeah. trauma. Your brain just shuts down. It's like exactly. you're getting knocked out. That it's much weight, li- you know. It's very likely that Andrew died on the first or second blow. Yeah. Keep Whew, in mind, he was a 70-year-old man. He wasn't feeling well. It was oppressively hot. And he was asleep. True. Yeah, that's that all makes perfect sense. It's, it'd be the same small. as somebody walking up and whacking you with a baseball bat. You're going to go down just from the force of the trauma of hitting you, let alone the fact that it's cutting I'll into the brain. I'll argue that one. I'll argue that one. At a 70-year-old man, though? Well, not 70. No, I was about 12. I got hit with a bat, and I didn't go down. Well, yeah, but, you know, again, someone's <laughs> hitting with a metal-tipped object. The, the force yeah. alone from it, even if you were to take away the, the cutting part of it, and then you factor in the cutting part, Plus, where did she hit him in the brain? Did she hit him in the base of the spine? You know, all of these different things go into effect. Took his eyeball out. Yeah, but that was after how many whacks? We don't know if that was on the first whack or, you know, it's hard to well, say. Sometimes sometimes eyes pop out from uh, the, the force. The yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I've seen some nasty morgue up. pictures. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Rob, we're going to let you go. Um, okay. As always, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you oh, for coming on short pleasure. notice. Um, it's my pleasure. I, again, I'm no, I'm no Borden expert, but it is a, it's a fascinating case. I think you covered everything to the, you know, that, that, that could possibly good. be, you Did know. a good job. Yeah, so. Well, thank you. And I'm sure I'll be bugging you again when your book comes out. Uh, oh, oh, We'll be talking so. to him before the book comes <laughs> yeah. out. It's a long time before October. You are our de facto go-to guy when it comes to unusual history at this point. So. Oh, great. So we've got certain people that we go to for certain topics, and you've kind of, like, every time me and Lobo come up with something, like, hey, want to cover this? Well, let me shoot a let me shoot a note yeah. over to Rob to what see if he might know about knows? this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, see what, let's see what Rob knows here first. <laughs> and sometimes we hit and sometimes we miss. So well, and if not, you, is, though, if I don't know, I can probably tell you who does. I was just about to say you usually steer us in the right direction. So, <laughs> anyways, all right, Rob, you take care. It was a pleasure talking to you again, man. Oh, great talking to you, Roach, and great talking to you, Lobo. And thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. We're going to cover Jake Bird now. Jake Bird, born December 14, 1901, died July 15, 1949, was convicted murderer and self-confessed serial killer who was tried and executed for the axe murders of Bertha Clutt, 53, and her daughter Beverly June Clutt, 17, in Tacoma, Washington on October 30, 1947. Bird may have killed as many as 46 people. Criminologist Eric W. Hickey, Ph.D., director of the Alliant International University Center for Forensic Studies, wrote about how Byrd 
Bird's case challenges stereotypes of serial killers, who are mostly thought to be Caucasian males, whereas African-American killers typically are associated with urban violence. Hickey wrote, Revelations that Jake Bird, a black man, had actually stalked and killed dozens of white women in the 1940s in dozens of states, continues to challenge traditionally held profiles of serial killers. The bodies of the Cluds were found by police after the a- they apprehended Bird, whom they saw flee uh, Clud residents at 1007 South 21st Street when they arrived in response to calls that there was screaming coming from the house. As they had approached, they saw a barefoot African-American run out and crash through a picket fence. They gave pursuit and had to scale the fence before cornering the suspect in an alley. Bird attacked the police with a switchblade knife when cornered. He was subdued by one of the officers. Bird's clothes were covered with blood and brain matter, and his shoes were back at the house. There was an axe on the kitchen floor where the bloody, uh, where the body of Beverly June lay lifeless. Her mother was found dead in her bedroom. Bird was dubbed the Tacoma Axe Killerer. Killerer. Killer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the 45-year-old bird was an African-American transient who had been born in Louisiana in a location he could not remember. He supported himself as a manual laborer and railroad gandy dancer who laid and maintained tracks. The work of the railroad kept him moving from place to place. Bird had an extensive criminal record, including burglary, attempted murder, and been incarcerated for a total of 31 years in Michigan, Iowa, and Utah. In a jailhouse confession, Bird said he had entered the Clud house to commit burglary and hit Bertha Clud in the head with an axe while trying to flee the house after she discovered him and attempted to stop him. When Beverly June came to her mother's aid, he killed her. Homicide detectives were convinced that Bird had entered the house to commit rape and slew Bertha Clud in her bedroom while trying to sexually assault her. They believed he then killed Beverly June when fleeing the house. He was charged with first-degree murder of Bertha as premeditation, on his part, qualified him for the death penalty. Bird was not charged with the, with murdering Beverly June. He pleaded not guilty and was held without bail. They found another dead body. How could he plead not guilty to killing somebody? Bird's trial began on November 24, 1947. <laughs> you put that gun on the floor, you're standing in it. No, I didn't do it. <laughs> didn't do it? What are you talking about? <laughs> Bird's trial began on November 24, 1947 and lasted two and a half days. Bird's request was represent himself was denied and a court appointed attorney represented him. Bird recanted his confession at the trial. His defense attorney claimed that Bird's confession was inadmissible as it had been obtained under duress as Bird claimed the police had beat him. The judge, I can believe that, the judge permitted the confession to be admitted into evidence. I can also believe that. Evidence implicating Bird was the brain tissue and blood of both victims that was found on his clothing. Oops. Bird's fingerprints were left on the axe in blood. Yep, that's kind of damning. <laughs> the case. Somebody just handed me this. The case went to jury on uh, November 26th, and they delivered a guilty verdict after deliberating 35 minutes. The jury recommended a death sentence, and Bird's lawyer concurred. Wow, the, his, his own lawyer concurred with the death penalty. The judge sentenced him to hanging by death. Ain't you supposed to be protected? No me? kidding, dude. <laughs> what, oh, my God. Uh, after his conviction was announced, Bird was allowed to make a final statement. He spoke for 20 minutes, noting that his request to represent himself had been denied and that his own lawyers were against him. Bird then said, I'm putting the Jake Bird hex on all you who had anything to do with me being punished. Mark my words as you will die before I do. 
Allegedly, six people connected to the trial died. Judge Edward D. Hodge had of a heart attack within a month of sentencing to death, as did one of the officers who took his first confession. A police officer took the second confession, died, as did the court's chief clerk and one of Byrd's prison guards. J.W. Sel- uh, Selden, one of Byrd's lawyers, died on the first anniversary of his sentencing. This may have been the second hex cast by Byrd, according to a contemporary account in uh, Negro Digest. When Byrd was arrested, he told detective, You wait and see. You policemen and judges will be setting and waiting at the pearly gates a long time before I roll up. That dude's a badass. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Throw some the wicked mojo around. I'm telling you, man, there's something to be said about that. And I know. The execution at the Washington State Penitentiary was scheduled for January 16, 1948, but Bird claimed that he had committed 44 other murders, which he was willing, willing to help the police solve. Washington Governor uh, Monrad C. Walgren, what a name, granted him a 60-day reprieve. Police from other states interviewed Bird, and 11 murders were substantiated. Wow, 11 more. He was knowledgeable enough about 33 other murders to be considered a prime suspect. The interviews with Byrd enabled the police departments of many states to claim many unsolved murders as solved. In addition to his Washington state murders, the transient Byrd apparently had killed people in Florida. There it is. First shot. Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Back on tour. Crap. Yeah, right? He mostly preyed on Caucasian women. Bird had dispatched his victims with an axe or hatchet. During his reprieve, Bird lodged an appeal, but a, but a retrial was denied by the Washington State Supreme Court. His appeal to the federal courts, including three petitions to the United States Supreme Court, also were denied. He was hanged on the morning of July 15, 1949, at 12.20 a.m. before 125 witnesses. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. How did yeah. this guy slip through the cracks when we did our serial killer thing? I don't know, but I'm glad we found him here because it all ties in. That's that dude a, was that wicked, a man. Badass. Holy that shit. dude's pretty wicked. When your own lawyer is against you, yeah, that's probably yeah, you not realize good. Too, though, you look at, I mean, I hate to say it, but you're looking in the late 1940s. He's a black man on trial. Yeah, but dude, and he wait, but he killed two white chicks. His he, primarily, no matter what he, what he did, he was going to yeah, He was fry. done. He was done. There was no way around it. I mean, I kind of think the guy's nobody. a dick for throwing the curse out there. <laughs> you know, I'm actually, you know what? I can't, no. I, no, absolutely not. I'd have done the same damn thing. Well, the guy's guilty, you know? And so, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he's guilty. But you know what? If I'm going down, I'm taking people with me. Oh, God. <laughs> Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. We're going to be covering the Axeman of New Orleans. In May of 1918, a year and a half long reign of terror struck the French Quarter, leaving a trail of blood and mystery that remains unsolved today. 
Many residents of the city believe the killer to be some sort of supernatural creature. Others merely a psychotic serial killer with a taste for blood. The nature of the massacres indicated that the killer used an axe, giving the rise to the media calling him the Axe Man. In 1911 and 1912, similar murders left 49 people slaughtered in their sleep across portions of Louisiana and Texas. The trail of carnage began in Rain, Louisiana, where a young woman and her three children were found slaughtered in their home. A month later, a family of three had been found in the same manner in Crowley, Louisiana. Then shortly afterwards, another, was fo- another four found dead in Lafayette. All the victims were asleep when decapitated and dismembered with what appeared to be an axe. Entire families were slaughtered mercilessly over the next year in various areas between Lafayette, Louisiana, and San Antonio, Texas. The killer left a note for police at one home that read, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not, to cr- not the cry of the humble human five. Makes no sense to me either. Baffled police speculated whether the killer was a man or a woman or even suggested that it might be a midget, which would either be a man or a woman. Uh, The chiseled panels in the door, which afforded entry, were not large enough for a full-grown man to fit. Some police began to blame supernatural forces. The elusive killer evaded police and continued the bloodbath, accessing homes through small openings and doors, hardly large enough for a child to fit into. Those lucky enough to survive described the images of a shadowy or phantom-like figure seen fleeing the scenes of the crimes. One witness described a phantom that disappeared quickly as if he had wings. The city followed the instructions of this maniacal killer filling homes, restaurants, and streets of the French Quarter with music. One local songwriter, Joseph de Villa, created a song called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, which became very popular. No murders occurred that night. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the aether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians in your foolish police call the X-Man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them try not to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is a need for such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the doubles in the other regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain. And that is that some of your people, who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. 
Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or in the realm of fancy. The Axeman. The brutal killings resumed again on August 3rd, 1919. Again, maiming and killing victims ending in October that same year with the murder of grocer Mike Pepitone. The grocer's wife and six children lay asleep in the room next door as the axeman wielded fatal blows to his sleeping victim. A little over a year later, the person who may, many believed may have been the axeman had been shot in California. A man named Joseph Mumphrey had been shot and killed by a woman, Esther Albano, a.k.a. Mrs. Mike Pepitone. Mumphrey led a ring of blackmailers in New Orleans' mafia and had served time in jail beginning in 1911 at the end of the first set of murders, then released in 1918 shortly before the next. The case remains a mystery as no actual evidence ever surfaced proving that Mumphrey was the Axeman. The Phantom never returned to New Orleans after his murder. No one will ever know. There was also, on the night that he wrote the letter, that uh, people were responding in local newspapers and stuff like that because they imprinted this letter in the newspaper, which the X-Men wrote, and people were responding into the newspaper and all over the place saying, hey, come attack my house. I will leave my windows open. My front doors are wide open. And a lot of people didn't play jazz music just to see, to to invite this guy to come and attack them and to try to kill them. So it was, you know, that this is the, the, the sensationalized part was the letter. And it, it did freak a lot of people out. People were out that night in the jazz clubs and so forth. And uh, this also was made famous by the last season of American Horror Story. The Axe Murder of New Orleans was one of the more prominent characters in that show. And mm. I was a fan of last season. I liked that season a lot. And then when I saw the thing on there, I had heard about the Axe Murder of New Orleans but I didn't know how much of it was embellished and all that stuff because it's TV and Hollywood and all that. And then the more that I started reading into this, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to cover mm. it on this show. Is something wrong? Well, yeah, actually. I feel a little bit guilty. I'm, I'm afraid I got you to let me in here under sort of false pretenses. Oh. Yeah. You see, I am an axe murderer. <laughs> And I, I have a favor to ask of you. Yes? Well, you see, I, w I was next door uh, chopping up your neighbors, the, um... The, uh, the, the Dumonts. Uh, the Dumonts, yes, thank you. And, well, I guess I was chopping them up, and I guess I, I, I pulled back too quickly, and the head flew off my axe, and it smashed through the window, and I, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. It's really kind of embarrassing, but, uh... Anyway, I went out, and it was so dark, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, and I saw that your lights were on, and I thought, hey, why don't I go over there and borrow uh, your axe? So, uh, so could I, could I borrow... Uh, your axe, please. I'm sorry, I, I don't own an axe. Really? You, you, don't, you don't have an axe? No, I'm sorry. Smutty Nose Island. Smutty Nose Island, formerly Smutty Nose, with a hyphen, is one of the Isles of Shoal, located six miles off the coast of New Hampshire, is actually in the state of Maine, which everybody knows I love Maine. It is part of the town of Kittery, which also has a trading post, which is lovely, in York County. It is named for a fisherman seeing the island at sea level and noticing. I mean, you could literally buy everything at the trading post. Yes, I know. You just keep cutting yourself off in the middle of the sentence. Go ahead. <laughs> the profuse seaweed at one end looked like the smutty nose of some vast sea animal. The island is best known for two murders that occurred there. On 6 March 1873, two Norwegian women, Karen and Neith 
Christensen, were strangled and one struck with a hatchet. A third woman, Marin Hantvet, of course they're Norwegian, escaped and hid on the island at a place now called Marin's Rock. Wow, okay. Couldn't you think of a better name for it? Marin, the only witness to the murders, identified German-born fisherman Louis Wagner as the killer. Wagner was tried, convicted, and although he maintains his innocence, hanged. Despite an airtight case, so vehement was his denial that people long believed he was innocent. The story of the murders was told by Celia Thaxter in her account, A Memorable Murder, and by Anita Shreve in her novel, The Weight of Water. How fitting is that? Later made into a film of the same name, starring Sean Penn and Elizabeth Hurley. Wagner was hunted down after fleeing the island. He was quickly arrested in Boston, extricated back to Portsmouth. 10,000 angry townspeople waited for him at the train station and shadowed him all the way to the police station, chanting, Lynch him! Kill him! (laughs) My kind of crowd. Wagner was then brought to Alfred, Maine for trial. After he was condemned to death, he broke out of jail and escaped to New Hampshire. He was recaptured and brought to the gallows in Thomaston State Prison. The Smutty Nose Island Murders, Trial, Jailbreak, and Execution is featured in the book Return to Smutty Nose Island by Emmerich Spooner. Smutty Nose Island is also a source of the name of Smutty Nose Brewing Company of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Well, that means I should go out and buy that beer then. <laughs> Marin's Rock. You know, they couldn't have called it like Marin's Secret Hideaway. Well, what or else he going to do? Marin's I mean, Escapey you know, Place. or something. Marin's Escapey Place. Yeah, it did a lot of good for, for the person, didn't it? Yeah, nice well, escape. They were saved. Marin was saved. <laughs> I think that's enough to cover on axe murder, so I think I'm going to call this a show. But at this point, I, 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 mean, I have not edited it at this point. Even though you guys have already heard it, I'm sure it's going to be a two-part episode. So uh, let's close this thing out because uh, we've been recording. We've recorded <laughs> this all as one piece. piece. Yeah, and this is where this is why you've read so much of the show tonight because I'm starting to trip over my own tongue. Um, my skills mm-hmm. lay in the interview department, whereas your skills lay in the reading department and putting <laughs> stuff out there because as I'm everybody knows – yeah, oh my god. If I see one more post about reading Rainbow coming back, I'm going to lose it. Which I'm glad it's coming back. Great. I'm glad it it's made all the money. It's not coming back the way you think it is though. That's well, he made the all the problem. money off of the Kickstarter. So, but it's not coming back the way you think it's coming back. It's not coming back as a television show. So, it's what not. is it going to come back as? Uh, computer apps, stuff that's integrated that's on on laptops and on, you know, desktops mobile devices where kids can somebody will give the him experience. the show back they will bring and that show he's back. not he's not interested in having it. he owns the rights to reading Lane. oh man so <sighs> i don't know it was all over all of the social medias but anyways um i'm gonna give us uh, on our web page i give a shout out and i'm gonna do another one here to the sword and scale podcast which is hosted by a cat named mike bodet mike bodet has been around for a while. He he was one of the Mysterious Universe uh, fanboys way back in the day when we all used to hang around, ro- rotate around the Mysterious Universe show, and we used to listen to him live and stuff. He did a show called Universe of Luxury, which was short-lived, and then he tried to do something else, um, and then he came back with some other kind of show, which honestly I didn't like. Sorry, Mike, if you hear this, but he's got a new one out called Sword and Scale, and it's very much about crime and weirdness. In the, well, he describes it as... Um, 
Sword and Scale is an internet radio show and website covering the dark underworld of crime and criminal justice systems response to it. The show and website were launched January 21st, 2014 and features stories of murder, abduction, rape, and even some even more bizarre forms of crime. The show is very impressive and has excellent audio quality and production, and it does. He does a really good job of producing that show. It's got lots of fully sound effects in it. Um, it really sounds like something that belongs on on national public radio. I would say. I would say. I would call. I would have no problem hearing this show on public radio. It's got excellent production value. He has interviews that he's managed to dig up with different killers and things like that. Uh, criminals, you actually hear their courtroom testifying cases and all these kinds of things. And it's cool. a great show. It is the website is http colon forward slash forward slash swordandscale.com. Um, I would imagine you can Google it and find it. I know it's on iTunes. I don't know if he's on Stitcher yet. Um, again, I want to give a shout out to the guys over at Amazing Things, the Canadian guys that we love to give uh, harassment to. I'm really surprised <laughs> Fagerl hasn't jumped on our case yet for teasing Canadians. But, give it uh, time. Give it time. I don't think so. Faye knows uh, better. She will, just to give a shit. Faye knows. <laughs> <laughs> we love Faye. She's I mean, awesome. Like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, again, try to find the Amazing Things podcast if you're interested in learning stuff. Check both of them out. Sword and Scale, I really like. Mike's done a fantastic job on this show, and if you like the darker stuff that we cover, um, Mike don't screw around. He puts an excellent show together. Very listenable and enjoyable if you're into that kind of stuff. Oh, it's um, available on Podkicker. Well, everything's available on Podkicker. I can, I can, I just found out today that we still have like 800 something people that are, are following Dude, us on Stitcher. Nuts. Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher's a crummy app. You know, though, <laughs> it, it gives people an alternative if they don't have iTunes. It gives them yeah, something else to listen Podkicker. to. But not everybody wants to use Podkicker. I don't know. I'm just glad people are out there listening to us. So if you're listening to us on Stitcher and you're supporting us there, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much because I had no idea. I just logged into Stitcher. Last time I checked it, we were like 500 followers or something. And now we're up to 800-something, and people are still listening to us out there on Stitcher. Which, if I take those numbers and cross them or mix them with the numbers that I'm getting from the other trackers, I think we're well over 100,000 downloads now. I'm not – we're at 95,000 downloads not going through Stitcher. Wow. So I think we finally cracked the 100,000. Our numbers have been going up. Somebody tried to attempt to hack our site last week and didn't do it or something to that effect. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but we're good. Um, Jason Offit, if you're out there, which you probably happy will birthday. be, happy birthday, Jason. Um, I'm going to go on the record and say we need to get you on here some way or another. So yeah, we do. By this point, I've probably sent it to you already. I'm just going to send you over something and say we need to have you on here. What are we going to talk about? There's yeah. no excuse why we shouldn't have had you on this show at no, this point. None whatsoever. <laughs> We've been following you for years, long yeah, before literally. we were doing our podcast. Way before. Well, not literally. I mean, started. maybe you were following him all over the place, but I wasn't. So, anyways, Wow. That I'm not a stalker yet-ish. Ish. <laughs> I was waiting oh, for Oh, I got to say part. hi to Mary, too. Mary? She was back up here in Connecticut, Chastain. Oh, yeah. She was back up here in yeah. Connecticut, and again, we couldn't meet up. She's somebody that rotates on the outside of us. Um, She's awesome. Is that everything? Is that everything I think that I can, so. I think that's everything we I can We covered people with. that helped out. We gave our shout-outs. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Stumbled over the English language. We do that every show. Yeah. <laughs> Literally every show. I think that's it. Um, I go back to work in probably two weeks, so anybody who's actually been following me in the social medias with my rapid-fire posting, it's probably going to start to drop off. So, you know. Um, mm -hmm. things are back up in the air now. We got a few shows we're gonna try to knock out of the way. Got a couple interviews I'm gonna try to set up, and that's pretty much it. So we'll see everybody on the other side. Talk to everybody soon. This is Rojan from the D. Peace out.
This is Lobo from Connecticut. Psyched, I bought my first brine shrimp hatchery ever. You, what, what? 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 I did. I bought my first, well, it's a shrimpery. Do I you struggle to come up with the weird crap you say at the end of the show, or does it just come right off the top of your head? Why do you, just, brine shrimp, out. isn't that, are we back to sea monkeys again? Technically, yes. Technically, yes? Brine shrimp are sea well, monkeys. So, no, no, they are, but they're not. What's the hatchery all about? It's a shrimpery what? so that I can start growing them so I can feed them to my saltwater fish. A shrimpery. A shrimpery! Yeah. <laughs> Here we have the Bubba Gump shrimpery. <laughs> Stop! It's actually uh, San Francisco Bay Company shrimpery. So. <laughs> Peace out, folks. Peace! God, you come up with the weirdest shit. <laughs> oh, sorry.
well, what do you mean who's Mark? I'm, there, there's nobody named Mark here. Oh, wait a minute. He doesn't understand the terminology. Okay. That was great. He's engaged in a different gear right now. <laughs> the <Axeman> mode. Oh. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I have never had that happen I on the air before. No, that's the only thing anyone's going to remember from this show. <laughs> no. No. That was great. That was spot on. Oh my god. Okay. Whew. All right. 